On the balance, the no tourniquet rule just didn't make sense. Tourniquets are safe. Welcome to the Journal of Special Operations Medicine. I'm your co-host, Alex Merkel. And I'm Josh Randles. And this is where evidence-based medicine meets unconventional warfare. The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speaker's own, and nothing contained herein is to be considered the official opinion of the Journal of Special Operations Medicine or the U.S. government, including the Defense Health Agency, Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Navy, or Air Force. Hi, everyone. This is Michelle Landers, founding publisher of the JSOM. I'd like to thank you for joining the JSOM's 20th anniversary interview series. We are excited to bring together a host of experts, all leaders in the soft medical community. In these interviews, we will be discussing the ever-evolving methods of treating battlefield trauma and injury, and how those methods have changed over the 20 years since the JSOM's inception. I hope you'll find these talks as informative as we do. And for the year-end culminating exercise here for this project, we have the privilege of the granddaddy of TC3. This is Dr. Slash Retired Captain Butler, who should need no introduction. Um, I like to think of him in terms of parallels from the Navy as one of the original six frigates from 1794 that happens to still be in service but has been morphed into a nuclear aircraft carrier. He is a former Navy SEAL platoon commander. After four years in UDT-12 and SEAL Team 1, he went on to medical school, where he attended med school at the Medical College of Georgia. After his internship, he went through the Navy Undersea Medical Officer Training Program and was then assigned to the Navy Experimental Diving Unit for five years. He did an ophthalmology residency at National Naval Medical Center in Bethesda and was then assigned as the chief of ophthalmology at Naval Hospital Pensacola in 1989. In 1990, he was additionally assigned to be the director of the Navy SEAL Biomedical Research Program, which was a job he held for 14 years. Uh, he also did a tour in Afghanistan in 2003 as the task force surgeon for Joint Special Operations Task Force 5. Captain Butler was then selected to be the first Navy physician to serve as the command surgeon for the U.S. Special Operations Command. After leaving active duty, he served for 11 years as the chairman of the DOD Committee on TC3, and he is now a consultant for TC3 through the Joint Trauma System. His awards include the Distinguished Lifetime Military Contribution Award from the American College of Surgeons this year in 2020, and also the U.S. Special Operations Command Medal presented by none other than Admiral Bill McRaven in 2011. Doctor, thank you so much for the privilege of joining us today. This is just wonderful, and we'd like to start off by asking a basic question, which is, what exactly is TC3, and where did it come from? Alex, thanks very much for that very nice introduction. Uh, tactical Combat Casualty Care, or as we will abbreviate it, TC3, is a set of evidence-based pre-hospital trauma care guidelines that has been specifically customized for use on the battlefield. TC3 started as a project in the Naval Special Warfare Biomedical Research Program in 1992. Interesting. And so what exactly was the NSW Biomedical Research Program and how did it come about? 
1989, I had just finished my ophthalmology residency and was working as a staff ophthalmologist at the Naval Hospital Pensacola. I was in clinic one morning seeing patients and got a call to come up to the office of the hospital's executive officer. That didn't sound too good, but it turned out to in fact be good because the SEAL community was looking for medical officers with Naval Special Warfare experience to enhance the medical support being provided to the SEAL community. After discussions with SEAL Captain Tom Lawson, the commander of the Naval Special Warfare Center, and Rear Admiral George Worthington, who was the commander at WARCOM at the time, the decision was made to establish a biomedical research effort that was sharply focused on the unique array of medical and physiologic issues encountered in SEAL operations. I was given the unique opportunity to continue to work as an eye surgeon in Pensacola while assuming the management of this research program. It was truly a dream job. Uh, this program was later further supported by uh, subsequent Naval Special Warfare Command commanders, including Rear Admirals Ray Smith, Tom Richards, Eric Olson, and Bert Callan. This unique arrangement provided an opportunity to make a number of significant contributions to the SEAL and Special Operations communities, and I'm deeply grateful to these senior Special Warfare leaders for their trust and support throughout my 14 years in that program. Oh, wow. I, I wasn't aware of that. And so what were some of the other products of the NSW Biomedical Research Program besides TC3? Other projects included the Naval Special Warfare Decompression Computer. This computer was, is an essential tool for complex multi-level dive profiles that SEAL delivery vehicle missions or SDV missions entail. The SEAL community have been trying to get this item fielded for the better part of two decades, and with the help of the diving experts at the Navy Experimental Diving Unit and the engineers at the Cochrane Company, we got that done, and the computer is still being used to this day. Laser refractive surgery in the military was another. In the early 1990s, refractive surgery was absolutely not allowed in either special operations or the aviation community. That was maybe a good policy for the older types of refractive surgery that entailed making incisions into the cornea. But when laser refractive surgery came along, it was a whole new ball game. And we did a study that showed that laser refractive surgery, or PRK for short, was safe for both diving and jumping. Admiral Ray Smith helped us push the approval for this surgery through BUMED and laser refractive surgery is now all over the military and has helped our operators to be free from the need for refractive correction. And it's also increased the candidate pool for special duty operations in the military because now individuals who are nearsighted or farsighted and can't uh, meet the visual requirements for special operations duty can have this surgery and be corrected so that they are in fact now qualified. We also did a study that extended the carbon dioxide absorbent canister operating limits for oxygen rebreathers to far longer than had been previously allowed. This greatly enhanced the STV mission capability and saved the Navy millions of dollars by avoiding them having to go out and buy new oxygen dive rigs to achieve the longer dive limits. 
And then finally, I'll mention that there was a strong human performance component to the NSW biomedical research program. We helped to set up orthopedic injury rehab clinics at the SEAL commands. And we also funded Patty Doyster at USU to author both the Navy SEAL nutrition guide and the Navy SEAL physical fitness guide. Wow, it sounds like you guys did some amazing things at the lab. So what ended up happening to the NSW Biomedical Research Program? At the direction of Rear Admiral Chuck Lemoyne, who was then the Deputy Commander at U.S. SOCOM, the program was later moved to U.S. SOCOM and restructured so that we could address the biomedical research needs of all of the U.S. SOCOM components. That meant expanding to include such programs as the special operator as a tactical athlete throughout U.S. SOCOM, studying high-altitude parachuting after diving for the special forces community, and the, studying the aeromedical issues involved with the CV-22 aircraft, which was coming online at the time, in the Air Force Special Operations Command. I love that all of these are just so science and data driven. So let me ask, how did the NSW Biomedical Research Program identify that battlefield trauma care was an area of focus and why was it so important at the time? Alex, combat casualty care is obviously an important part of providing medical care to the SEALs. SEALs are very good at what they do, but even they sometimes get shot or blown up while conducting missions. As soon as you start looking into battlefield trauma care, you realize that almost 90% of combat fatalities occur before the casualty gets to the care of a surgeon. If the casualty lives long enough to reach the care of a surgeon, the odds are overwhelming that he or she will survive. That means that the care that they receive from the combat medic, corpsman, or PJ is the most important determinant of whether they live or die. So the greatest opportunity to improve survival in combat casualties was to make the pre-hospital phase of care better because that's where most combat fatalities occur. Fascinating and I think the data really supports that now but um, what was it about battlefield trauma care in 1992 that made you think this area needed to be investigated as a research project? Alex, there's a 1970 paper by Navy Captain J.S. Mon that said, and I quote, all seem uncertain regarding the best method to implement factual knowledge to the man most in need, the frontline trooper. Citing our ineptness in the field of self-help and first aid, little if any improvement has been made in this phase of treatment of combat wounds in the past 100 years. That's pretty compelling. And then there was this. And again, I quote, the striking feature was to see healthy young Americans with a single injury of the distal extremity arrive at a magnificently equipped field hospital, usually within hours, but dead on arrival. In fact, there were 193 deaths due to wounds of the upper and lower extremities of the 2,600 we saw. So take a second and stop and do the math on those numbers. Mon found that death from extremity hemorrhage was the cause of 7.4% of his 2,600 fatalities. But the total number of deaths for U.S. forces in Vietnam was 46,233. 
So if you multiply 7.4% by that number, you come up with 3,421 preventable U.S. deaths from extremity hemorrhage. Now that is a staggering number. And yet at the time, in 1992, all of the trauma training courses for both physicians and medics, military and civilian, taught our medics not to use tourniquets. Add to those facts, uh, if you are an old basketball player, as I am, and you have beat up knees, as I did at the time, and you go in for knee surgery, what do they do to your leg before they start to operate on it? They put a tourniquet on it. On the balance, the no tourniquet rule just didn't make sense. Tourniquets are safe, but only if you use them for short periods of time. So that was the primary driver for tactical combat casualty care. And then after the realization that we'd gotten something so fundamental, so wrong, for so long, it became obvious that we needed to go back and relook at every aspect of pre-hospital trauma care. So during the three years of the TC3 research effort, we looked at combat casualty care in a tactical context, for example, what happens to a SEAL if he gets shot while he's in the water? How is the care modified for that fact? We looked at combat airways, fluid resuscitation, battlefield analgesia, spinal precautions, battlefield CPR, treatment of tension pneumothorax, battlefield antibiotics, and everything else that can be done for a casualty before he gets to the hospital. And it sounds like you guys did this in a, a really robust scientific manner. How was the TC3 research project conducted? It was a joint effort between special operations medical personnel and the Uniformed Services University. And it was funded from 1993 to 1996. We looked through all of the trauma care literature for pre-hospital trauma care. And we looked as well at animal studies of trauma models. Uh, we considered the combat environment and the combat mission. And then we also factored in the training that combat medics get, the equipment that they carry. And importantly, we included combat medics, corpsmen, and PJs into the research effort. The research effort was evidence-based, and importantly, we required evidence to support the current practice at the time, some people think of evidence only in the context of new changes without stopping to look at the evidence that supports what's being done at present. And as TC3 has always focused, the goal was to prevent every single death that could possibly be prevented. Yeah, and it's really fascinating to see that only now are the, the surgeons through the American College of Surgeons really picking up that zero preventable deaths that you've been harping on for 20 years. I, I really am so impressed with how far you've led the way. And how were special operations medics, corpsmen, and PJs being trained in battlefield trauma care back in 1992? Yeah, this elite group of medics were being trained to do trauma care according to ATLS, the Advanced Trauma Life Support Course. The American College of Surgeons had developed this course some years earlier with the inaugural course being taught in 1978. For over four decades since that time, the ATLS course has been accepted internationally as the standard for the initial in-hospital care of trauma victims. 
And one thing that special operations really liked about ATLS was that it tried to focus on treating life-threatening conditions in trauma patients. So those included uh, a rapid assessment overall, endotracheal intubation if the casualty needed help with his breathing, putting in a chest tube if there was a gunshot wound or other penetrating trauma to the chest. ATLS included supplemental oxygen as a routine measure. They taught pericardiocentesis, which is putting a needle into the space between the heart and the fibrous pericardium that encloses it to remove any blood that might be collecting there. ATLS taught medics to do cricothyroidotomies to relieve upper airway obstruction. They taught peritoneal lavage, which was a diagnostic measure to evaluate for intra-abdominal bleeding. They taught venous cutdown if medics could not get peripheral IV access. And they taught other things uh, like anti-shock garments, extremity splinting, spinal board application, IV access, and administration of resuscitation fluids. Interesting. And so how did you go about the TC3 research project itself? Well, bear in mind that ATLS was developed for doctors in the emergency department, not medics on the battlefield. So we went back through and looked at all of the interventions that I just mentioned from the standpoint of a medic on the battlefield. And to oversimplify this, think of it as a seven-stage process. First stage was to review all of the pre-hospital trauma care literature and evaluate the evidence base. Second was to, having done that, prepare a draft of the proposed guidelines. The third and most interesting part was to take those proposed guidelines and then conduct a series of open forums, if you will, town halls, where we showed them to corpsmen, medics, PJs, and their medical directors and said, tell us what you don't like about these. Tell us what you do like about them. What should we change? And they did. Uh, So stage four was to come back and revise the draft of the TC3 guidelines based on that feedback. And then the fifth stage was to take this draft, which was by now reasonably smooth, and I actually identified 26 different expert reviewers from all over the country, trauma surgeons, critical care physicians, uh, emergency medicine physicians, and asked them to review the paper and tell me what needed to be fixed. And so lots of feedback on that. Stage six was to go back and revise the paper again based on the feedback from these 26 expert reviewers and then uh, submit it for publication to military medicine. So the original TC3 paper, which was the product of this research project, was published as a special supplement to the journal Military Medicine in 1996. Well, don't leave us hanging, sir. What happened to TC3 after 1996? (laughs) Well, there was no war going on at the time. So we had a peace interval during which we could try to get TC3 implemented into the armed services. The first thing that we did was to do a series of high-level briefings for senior leaders in military medicine. The Surgeon Generals, the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health Affairs. At that level, I will say that there was interest, but neither did they have an action plan. 
Uh, the second thing that was done was to go around to medical conferences and present the new TC3 guidelines, both to inform military medical personnel and to continue to gather feedback. Uh, we did a series of workshops to see how TC3 might work in special environments. Again, Afghanistan had not yet started. So we looked at how TC3 might be applied to SEAL diving operations in wilderness medicine environments, urban warfare environments, and then chemical, biological, and radiation environments. But the fourth and most important thing that happened in these five years was that there was direct interaction with some of the groups that turned out to be early adopters of TC3. Those groups included the Navy SEALs, the 75th Ranger Regiment, the Army Special Missions Unit, and the Air Force PJs. All right, and we're going to take a brief pause to let you get up and stretch your legs there so you can make your Apple Watch happy. And we'll be back with the second half in just a minute. This is Sophia Rodriguez, Director of Marketing and Social Media Communications for the JSOM. I want to encourage our listeners to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at JSOM Online, and to sign up to receive our free e-newsletter on our website at jsomonline.org. We love hearing from our subscribers and followers and welcome your feedback and suggestions. 